you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. And we'll begin reading in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And this is the word of the Lord. If you would pray with me. Our Father, I pray that in this place we would come to a greater understanding of just how amazing your grace is, a greater understanding of your love that you have lavished on your children. I pray that my words would fall to the ground and blow away and not be remembered anymore, but Lord, may your words remain and may they change us. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus, amen. So far in this letter to the Ephesians, Paul has been talking about being chosen before the foundation of the world or being predestined for adoption or being redeemed by the blood of Jesus or being forgiven or having a glorious inheritance. But now in chapter two, he's going to wrap all of those things up into just one word, saved. As Christians, we have been saved. Uh, And now for those of you who are not Christians, perhaps you are here and you're just exploring the faith, you've heard that buzzword before. You've heard Christians use this word saved. Perhaps you've seen it on billboards or bumper stickers. Jesus saves. Turn to Jesus and be saved. And you've always wondered, well, what exactly is meant by that? Well, this is where you would go in Scripture to really understand what it means to be saved. You've probably also heard the word grace attached to that, that that we're saved by grace. And and sure enough, Christians love to sing about grace, amazing grace. Some Christians even name their children grace. We are all about grace. If you're wondering what grace is all about, this is the text to look for to understand grace how we've been saved by grace. 
But first, a question is probably popping up in your mind when you just even hear the word saved or salvation. You're thinking, so what exactly am I being saved from? Why exactly do I I need salvation? What's what's my condition that I need to be saved from? And so that's the first thing that Paul is going to address in chapter 2, is our need to be saved. And so he starts off by describing our present condition apart from God. Look at verse 1 again. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. The human condition apart from God can only be described as dead. Humankind is not merely sick, injured, or wounded. Mankind is not just kind of rough around the edges. Paul says, no, we're we're spiritual corpses. We are dead. And you find this throughout Scripture. It's why you read in John chapter 3 that we cannot see God, or in John chapter 8 that we cannot hear God, or in 2 Corinthians 2 how we cannot understand God, or in Psalm uh, 49 how we cannot or we do not seek after God. People who cannot see or hear or understand or seek after That's just describing a dead person. We we don't have the senses that somebody alive would have. We're not awake to the realities of who God is. Paul summarizes our conditions perfectly in Romans chapter 3 when he says this. He says, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. No, not one. That's the condition of humanity. Our primary problem is not that we struggle to to find happiness or that we struggle to find meaning in our life or that we struggle with loneliness. The primary problem of humanity is this. We're dead. We are spiritually dead. We're not alive to God, and therefore we don't receive the life-giving joy that comes from his presence. And can I just give an aside to this? I'm convinced that the, the primary reason that the Western church is so anemic, so anemic has nothing to do with some kind of invasion of liberalism. It has nothing to do with maybe... Uh, technology becoming part of the church or the fast-paced society we live in, the reason that the Western church has become so anemic is because it's full of dead people. It's full of people who actually need to be converted, who need, who need to come alive. And, and there's no amount of lights, there's no amount of smoke machines or theater seats, there's no amount of loud music or some hip new program that can make people become alive. What's needed is the gospel needs to be preached and then the spirit of God comes and he blows over dry bones and he raises people to life. And that's something that the Western church needs now more than ever is simply the gospel proclaimed and God raising the dead. We don't need new programs. A side end. Paul goes on here to describe what being spiritually dead looks like. 
um, in the next two verses. Uh, look again with me at uh, the first three verses here. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Spiritual death here as being described by Paul looks a lot like slavery. Looks like slavery. Paul says that the natural condition, our natural condition apart from God is one that in which we are enslaved to the ways of the world, we're enslaved to Satan, and we're enslaved to our own desires. He spells out all three of those things right here. But spiritual death looks like slavery. Uh, the word follow here, um, don't, don't think of how we use that term in English, follow, like um, we, we're following someone because we need directions, or we're we're following somebody on Twitter. Uh, that's, that's not the word. Follow. We're not following Satan on Twitter, all right? Uh, this is talking about we have been captured by this person. We've been captured by the world and by Satan and by our own desires. They are our masters, and we follow them because we are their slaves. That's what spiritual death looks like here. So let's look at these three things. The first thing that we have been enslaved to is what Paul calls the course of this world. Or some of your translations might say the spirit of this age. Basically, this is Paul's way of saying sin is the very air that we breathe. It's the very air that we breathe. The world is so fallen that when you sin, you just fit right in. If you're righteous, you stand out. But if you sin, you, you're right at home. I was recently talking to somebody about this. I was sharing my faith with them. And we're talking through all these points about the gospel. And, and he disagrees with some of these. But it was here when I, I talked about how the world is broken and how our hearts are depraved. He said, like, I got to stop you there. He goes, I really, I really feel like people are basically good at heart. And that the world is basically a good place. And I was like, really? Like, of all the arguments, this is going to be the hill you die on? <laughs> because I literally have all of human history on my side for this one. <laughs> Name me just one time, just one time in all of human history when we were not killing one another. Name me just one time in human history where the strong were not oppressing the weak. Name me just one time in all of human history where we were not abusing either sex or money or power. The world is broken. All of human history testifies to the broken nature of the world and the darkness of our hearts. It's the power of the age, of every age, the spirit of the age. It's the very air that we breathe. We're largely unaware of this because it's the very air that we breathe. I remember when I first, at least I could first remember being aware of the brokenness of this world, the depravity of hearts, is really just walking the halls in high school. 
Walking the halls in high school, you would hear every kind of coarse, crude, sexual joke there was. Then you would see all this bullying. Uh, and then you would, you would see the, or hear the women gossiping or uh, talking behind each other's backs in just the meanest possible way. You would see how uh, a person's looks are honored or valued way more than a person's character. And this would just go on all through the halls. And, and then after school, you go into the locker room and all the talk there was purely just uh, making women objects. And then you would go to practice and you would exhaust yourself. You would come home that night. You'd stay up late doing homework past your bedtime. You wake up the next day and you're doing it all over again. And you quickly realize that the world is actually hostile towards righteousness. That sin really is the very culture, it's the very air that we breathe. To be righteous makes you stand out. To sin, you just blend right in. That's what Paul means when he says it's the spirit of the age. It's the spirit of every age. Next in verse 2, he says that we follow the prince of the power of the air. This is a reference to the devil or a reference to Satan. There is a real spiritual force, a, a real personal spiritual force that is working hard for your destruction. That's what Paul is saying here. And we could land here for quite a while, but actually what I'm going to do is I'm going to punt that, all right? I'm going to punt that because we're going to deal with that in so much greater detail in Ephesians 6. And really what I want to do is move to the, the next thing we're in bondage of and land there because it's, it's actually the most important. The third and the greatest thing that we're enslaved to is our own desires. If Paul had just told us that we were enslaved to the course of this world, or just told us that we were enslaved to the devil, then, then we would have felt pretty sorry for ourselves because there were forces outside of our control working against us. And poor woe is me, caught up in this sinful systems. But Paul here, he says, it's not just the outside influences over you. You're the real cause of this sinfulness. Sin is not something that just happens to you. It's something that comes out of you. And really, it's these sinful desires that have led to a fallen world and the power of the devil. So in verse 3 here, he, he talks about this. He, let's read verse 3 again. He says, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Now the word flesh here, the Greek word is sarks, um, it's, it's not talking about this. It's not talking about skin or flesh. Um, what it's talking about is your self-centeredness. It's your self-centered human nature. That's your flesh. The default of the human heart is to always think about um, itself. And so you go through all of life thinking, what do I have to gain from this? How does this friendship benefit me? 
How does moving here help me? If Does taking this job, how will it benefit me? And you go through all of life, just, just the way you relate to others is how does it affect me? Is this going to be to my advantage? I've said this before, but one of the obvious ways that we see this is just through group photographs. Uh, so you have a group photograph and you see it, and who's the only person you look at? Yourself. And so if, if everybody else looks beautiful, but you kind of have that crooked smile, uh, then you're like, this photograph stinks. We got to take the photograph over. That's your sole evaluation for whether the photograph is good. The best photograph is actually when everybody else looks terrible and you look fantastic. That's, that's the keeper for you. That's our radical self-interest, self-centeredness. Now, self-centeredness can manifest itself in many ways. Uh, we, we typically think of self-centeredness as uh, manifesting itself in what we would call evil ways or immoral ways. Those who are self-centered, they can be unkind, they can be hurtful, they can be evil, they're, they're going to lie, they're going to steal to get their own way, maybe even kill to get their own way. They don't care if they have to hurt others to get what they want. And we think of that as how self-centeredness manifests itself, and it certainly does. That is a way in which self-centeredness manifests itself. But self-centeredness can also make you an extremely moral person, perhaps even a religious person. And you're fueled not by love for God, but you're fueled by love for self. And this is especially true in the Christ-haunted South, where, where for you to, to kind of be a moral person, it might be a way of just getting what you want. You all know that if you act good and you act nice, a lot of times it'll get you what you want in the end. One of the best illustrations I've ever heard concerning this came from Elizabeth Elliot. And uh, Elizabeth Elliot, she told this parable. She said Jesus got up one morning and he gathered the disciples around and he said, I'd like all of you disciples to pick up a rock and to come follow me. Now, this is not in your Bibles. Don't try to find this, all right? It's not there. Uh, so all the disciples, they pick up a rock and they start following Jesus. And, and Peter, he, he gets this little rock. And he's like, all right. And he just kind of puts it in his pocket and he just follows Jesus. And after an entire day of following Jesus, when they come to the end of this day, they are worn out. They are tired. They are hungry. And so Jesus says, all right, I want everybody to get out that rock. And so they all get out the rock and he prays a blessing and the rock becomes bread. And he goes, there's your dinner. And you have James there. It's like, you know, he's just eating away. John's just eating away. And, and then you have like Peter with this little corn muffin. <laughs> and that's all he has. And he goes to bed tired and he goes to bed hungry. And the next day, Jesus, he, he gets up and once again says, all right, I, I want everybody to pick up a rock and follow me. And so everybody's picking up a rock. And this time Peter's like, you know, Peter's like, he's got the rock. And so all day he's just doing this and he's following Jesus. At the end of the day, they're, once again, they're tired, they're wore out, they're hungry. And Jesus said, I want everybody to get out the rock. And Peter's like, mine's already out. You know, he's, he's holding this. It's like, I would like for everybody to throw it in the lake. What? So throws it in the lake. And Jesus says, good night. And Peter's just looking at Jesus. And Jesus looks at Peter and says, Peter, 
just who were you carrying the rock for? Who were you carrying it for? Now on the outside, Peter looked. Boy, he looked incredibly moral. He looked incredibly obedient. He could actually boast. Look, look at what I'm carrying. Look at all that I'm doing for Jesus. And you guys, I'm doing way more than all of you. But it was just fueled by self-centeredness. It was still all about him. Our religious devotion can be just another way that that manifests itself. Our religiosity can. Our morality can but our hearts are still enslaved to our every desire. Now, Martin Luther, he describes this as the curvature of the soul. The curvature of the soul. Those of you who were at our theological talk back a couple of months ago with Dr. Timothy George, he expounded on this, and he talked about what the curvature of the soul is. It was actually Martin Luther's definition of sin, That the soul is so curved that it curves completely back in on itself. It can't help but thinking of itself at all times. How does everything benefit me? It thinks of my needs, my wants, even at the expenses of others. And once again, this could lead to being a very religious, moral person, or it could lead to being an immoral person. But it's still slavery is still spiritual death. Think of the happiest moments that you have had in your life. The happiest moments, maybe the the birth of a child, or if you want to go shallower, you know, a a football game. You know, your your team wins a championship, you know, and you're you're watching this great play, and you're like, ah, I mean, you're just, you're so excited. And at, at that happy, joyful moment, I guarantee you this, you are not thinking about yourself. You're you're what we call completely caught up in the moment. Not caught up in yourself, but you're caught up in the moment. And you're, you're looking at glory and you're in a way outside of yourself and you're completely happy. And the same thing happens if you're up on the mountains and you see a gorgeous view. Or if you're at the beach and you're watching a sunset, you're not thinking of yourself at all. Nobody goes to the, to the edge of the Crane Canyon, stands there and, and thinks, I am awesome. Nobody's thinking about themselves. They're thinking of the beauty and the glory that's in front of them. And when they think that, and they're taken outside of themselves, you're actually filled with joy. Now think of the opposite. Think of the times you've been most depressed. The times you've been most anxious. It's probably the times you can't get out of your head. You just keep thinking about it. How does this affect me? How does, why did this person act this way? Why did they say this? This is so unfair to me. You can't get out of your head. Your soul is curving in on itself. And to deny, to keep curving in on yourself is to deny yourself the presence of God. And when this continues for all of eternity, you know what the biblical word for that is? Hell. The endless curvature of the soul. That's what Paul lays out here. We're enslaved to our own desires. So we're enslaved to the course of this world. 
We're enslaved to the devil. We're enslaved to the flesh, our own desires. We're spiritually dead. So what hope is there? That's where we come on verse four. But God. Let's just stop there. These two words, they need to be starred, highlighted, underlined, whatever you do. You go ahead, do it to all of chapter two. It's fine. And, and, and that's not even my favorite chapter in Ephesians, but it's a glorious, glorious chapter here. But those two words, but God, are two of the most glorious words that humanity has ever heard. But God. Thank the Lord we don't read but you. I mean, can you imagine what would happen if you read but you? Nothing good in scripture happens after a but you. You'll read things, but you were unwilling to listen. But you disobeyed me. But you refused to turn from your evil ways. But you oppressed the poor. But you killed the poor, or kill, we're killing and we're oppressing the poor. Or you have Jesus saying things like, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you, you have turned it into a den of robbers. That's what the but yous of the Bible are all about. You're not going to get this, but you, you really surprised me, you know, I thought, I thought I had you pegged. I thought, but you know, you really surprised me. You don't find that in the Bible. You, you, you don't find a, but you really pulled yourself up by your bootstraps and made something of yourself. I don't know how you did it, but you, you were able to turn your heart of stone into a heart of flesh. You will never see someone's spiritual condition change after a but you but yet we put so much effort in that. However, when you come across the words, but God, everything changes. So Noah in Genesis 8, he's on the ark. He's looking out at the floodwaters everywhere, and he's wondering, are the floodwaters ever going to go away? Is God's judgment ever going to cease? And we read the words, but God remembered Noah. And he causes wind to blow over the waters. And that but God teaches us that God never forsakes. He never forgets the ones that he loves. In Genesis 50, we have Joseph many years after his brothers uh, threw him in a pit. His brothers sold him into slavery. And now his brothers stand before him. And he's looking at them and he says, You meant this for evil, but God, he meant this for good. And we see how the but gods can even take acts of evil, acts of destruction, and turn them into acts of salvation. The but gods of the Bible can even turn death into life. And so you come across Psalm 49, which is all about death and destruction, and it says even the wise are going to die. Even the fools are going to die. Every man's just like the beast in the field. They're going to die. But God, he shall ransom me from the power of Sheol. We just opened up with Psalm 73. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God, 
He is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Acts 10, they killed Christ by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him up on the third day. Over and over again throughout scripture, when you hit the but God, you see death turn to life. Or the but God provides forgiveness for sins. But God, but God demonstrates his love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5. You could go on and on. There is a treasure trove in scripture of the but gods. I don't know if there's any greater though than what we find here in Ephesians 2. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love in which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. But God. The but God has made us alive together with Christ. In other words, that just as God raised up Christ from the dead, because we are so united with him, we have been raised from the dead. We've been spiritually raised from the dead now, and we will be physically raised from the dead in the future. And all of this is entirely the work of God's grace. Verse 5, he says, by grace you have been saved. Verse 8, once again, by grace you have been saved. You did not earn it. You didn't hold out your resume and see if God was impressed with it. You didn't hold up your grades you made in school and said, see, see, now do I get a reward? You did absolutely nothing for this. That's grace. Paul even goes on in verse 8 to say, for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Even your faith, even your ability to believe these things was a gift from God. You can't even boast about your faith. Everything is a result of God's grace. He does it all. You do nothing. I heard a pastor put it this way. He says this, if you want to relate God's relationship to us in human terms, then it's this. He is the one who starts the conversation. He is the one who sets up the date night. He is always the one who is romancing. He is always the one who makes the house clean. He is always the one who makes sure the yard is done. He is always the one who makes sure the dog is fed. He is always the one who goes out in the cold and warms up the car. He is always the one. He is always the one. Now, this is hard for us because there is not a person here who is in a relationship like that. No one has ever been in a relationship like that. Our relationships work tit for tat. I'll do this for you, you do this for me. And that's why we have arguments about, well, I thought I took out the garbage last time. Now it's your turn. That's how we relate to one another. But here God says, no, I do it all. As a matter of fact, do you want to know exactly what you contribute to salvation? Because you know, we all want to pat ourselves on the back. We all want to hold up one little thing. 
But let me tell you your contribution to salvation. You provided the sin. You provided the sin that needed to be forgiven. Now pat yourself on the back, all right? That's our contribution. We do nothing. God does it all. This is why Paul says here, every reason we have for boasting has been stripped away. Every reason. Now this is glorious news for us. For those of you who think you have sinned too much, you've done too much evil, you are too far gone, you need to hear the but God who could turn even death into life. Everything changes when God steps in. I used to hear my, my old uh, preaching pastor, he would always say, do not put a period where God has put a comma. It's not just you're dead in your sins. You're dead in your sins, comma, but God. It's not that you've just train wrecked your life, period. It's you've train wrecked your life, comma, but God. God steps in and he could take that train wreck and he could turn something beautiful out of it. What glorious words. Verse four says that he lavish, essentially lavishes this grace on us because of the great love in which he loved us. The great love in which he loved us. Uh, keep that in mind as we've been talking about all these different theological terms, being chosen or being predestined or being predeemed, undergirding all of that is really the love of God. That's what this is about. You should never talk about those things outside of the love of God. Husbands, if your wives ever ask you, why do you love me? It's a loaded question. Think carefully, all right? Why do you love me? And, and perhaps you say something like this. You think, because you're beautiful. Wrong answer, by the way. Because you're beautiful. She's thinking, I'm beautiful now. But my beauty will fade. My beauty will fade. And if you say, because of your wit. I mean, I, our conversations are just so intellectually stimulating. She's thinking, well, they are now. But what if I, what if I get dementia at some point? What if that changes? Or if you say, I, I love you because of your, your moral character, your beautiful inside. And she might be thinking, but what about if I make a terrible decision? What about if I go astray? The answer that everyone longs to hear is this. I love you simply because I love you. I just love you. And there is... Nothing you could do to make me love you any less, and there's nothing that you could do to make me love you any more. I just love you. The biblical word for that is grace. Unmerited grace. Amazing grace. That's the love that God has showered upon us. There is literally so much more here in this passage um, we've got to end. All right, let's quickly look at the life that we are saved to. 
the life that we are saved to. Let's go to verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Uh, You could translate this, for we are God's masterpiece. Um, I read a modern translation that said, for we are God's poem. I like that. We are God's poem. But essentially, it's this, that God doesn't make junk, all right? He doesn't make junk. And when he put you back together, and when he made you alive, and he, he made you into a new creation, you're a masterpiece. He's not embarrassed. He's not tucking you in some corner. He's not hanging you up in the laundry room. But you have a place of prominence. He's not ashamed to be called your God because you are his masterpiece, and you are beautiful. By God's grace, we become a new, beautiful person. And then he goes on to basically to say that now that we are no longer trying to earn his love, we are now free to share his love and to live out his love. We have been created for good works. Now we have meaning. Now we have purpose. Now we're not trying to gain the approval of God, but we've actually been freed and we can really live a life out of love and devotion to him. And this is our purpose. It's planned for us. God had your purpose in mind before the foundations of this world. So that's our immediate future, maybe our, our present future, if that makes sense. Our, I want to say distant future, but it might not be. It's found in verse 6 and 7. We'll end here. Christ raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. I honestly don't know what to add to this. Paul describes the riches of God's grace, and he says that they are immeasurable. Like, there's, there's just no way to measure these. these they're, they're endless. Literally no end to it. That's why we have an eternity. Because every day, a new grace will be given to us. And we will wake up the next day, and another grace will be given to us. And then another, literally wave after wave after wave. You will never be bored in heaven, because every day will be a new grace coming to you, because God can't exhaust his grace. It's immeasurable. And we spend all of eternity receiving this grace. Amazing grace. I don't know what to add to this. All of this is possible on the cross. It says we're seated in the heavenlies with Christ. We were seated in the heavenlies because Christ was seated on the cross. We're treated as Jesus deserves because he was treated as we deserve. It's at the cross of Christ that we have found our redemption. The cross of Christ is where we find the blazing center of God's glory and we find amazing grace for us. Let's pray through these things. Pray with me. Lord, my words fail, and so I pray through your spirit you would press them into the hearts of every person here. Free us from the 
course of this world and from the devil and from our own sinful desires. Those who are dead, I pray that you would spiritually wake us up. Make us alive in you, Christ. And may we forever sing the praise of your glorious grace. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.